Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I just want to reiterate uh, what a privilege it is that we get to do this every week. I just want you to sit in that for just a moment. It's a privilege we get to do this every single week. Um, to, to come and to serve and to sing and to give and to fellowship and to hear God's word preached and teached. Uh, let us always be reminded these are high, holy, and sacred moments together. Um, so many brothers and sisters in the world never get to do this. And yet we have to do it every week. So maybe not take it for granted as we gather together to worship today. And I'm going to get pretty uh, out of the gate, going to shoot pretty straight. Um, because there's some hard things we're going to deal with today. So I'm going to start off just making some statements. I think most of us would uh, wholeheartedly agree with. I'm going to start off with this. Uh, we live in a really broken world. Am I the only one that just... Yes. Okay. Just to make sure. Our world's full of a lot of pain and a lot of sadness, a lot of grief, and a whole lot of sin. And we live in a world where you look around, you see so much injustice and so much oppression and so much wickedness. We live in a world that so often leaves us somewhat confused, um, a world that's really complex, really complicated at times. Um, we live in a world that sometimes feels like it's really out of sorts. Sometimes it may feel like your world is kind of spiraling out of control. We live in a world where there is a whole lot of selfishness and a whole lot of self-centeredness and a whole lot of self-focus and very little self-sacrifice and very little self-denial. And very little self-control. We live in a world where it seems that so often evil triumphs while good is ridiculed. And where depravity is applauded at every turn and where purity is often scorned. Where immorality is praised by the masses and holiness is mocked by most everyone. And where pride and power get wielded like weapons of glory while humility is so often looked down as contemptible weakness. So we live in a world that, if we're, if we're honest, seems to be coming apart at the seams at times. Sometimes it feels like thread by thread, life is unraveling. And if we're honest, uh, even us good church people watching online and in this room, we have to admit there's times that, that feel like God is silent. And there's times in our lives we feel like God is absent, like God has turned his face away, and it feels like at times God has taken his hands off the proverbial steering wheel of the world and has left it just to careen off the road. And you're probably thinking, Jason, that's, that's real heavy to start this sermon with. What about a good pastor joke, Jason? What about a, one of those clever little pastor stories you guys tell all the time that makes us happy and giggle a little bit? Well, uh, today is not a funny sermon. Um, what we're doing today is very difficult and hard. That's why I'm coming out of the gate with some sobering words and some somberness, because all of us know that we live in a world that's broken and difficult and sin-stained. We know personally, if we're honest, what it's like to wonder if God really does still care about us, and if God really still loves us, and if God really is still working through heartbreaking, difficult struggles and circumstances that many of us have going on in our lives this morning. So here's a stone-cold reality. One of these likely will apply to you. Just some statements as I was kind of praying through this week that I think maybe encompasses many of us this morning. Some of us have walked into this space or have watched online this morning, and we're carrying such pain and grief that we can barely stand it. 
And you may have a smile on your face, but your soul is weeping. You may have walked in this place this morning, and you feel like you're literally dragging an anchor behind you because of how hard and heavy your life feels at the moment. And you may say, hey, I'm doing just fine, and life is great, but deep down, you know you're about to collapse. Some of us walked in this place this morning, and we feel beaten down, and we're exhausted, and we feel empty because our lives do feel out of control, and at times they do, it does feel helpless because of choices that we've made, or perhaps because of choices others have made that affect us. And some of us are watching this place this morning, and we have some pretty deep wounds that we're bearing. Now, sadly, some of those wounds are self-inflicted wounds, but other wounds are there because others have inflicted them upon us. And some of us have walked into this room this morning so covered with shame because of choices that we have made that it is a miracle we've walked in here. But praise the Lord that you did. I'm not sure which one of those scenarios kind of match up with where you are this morning, but this I do know. You are not in this space by accident. God has not forgotten about you or what's going on in your life. And I want to remind you on the forefront that God is working through all the things going on in your life at the moment. And you may not be able to trace God's hand, but I want you to know that you can always trust his heart. Because the scriptures say God's heart towards you is love and compassion and kindness and mercy. And I know it may feel as if life could be out of control right now and your circumstances uh, feel futile and pointless and, and empty. But I want you to know that there is a God in heaven right now who is sovereign, and he will redeem, according to Scripture, every moment of pain and heartache for his glory and your good. But there's a sovereign God in heaven. I love the Old Testament. It says, he will restore all the years the locusts have eaten. All the years, all the pain, all the moments that feel wasted, he will redeem. But there's a God in heaven who will wipe away all the tears. And I want you to know that there is a God in heaven who is at all times and in all places and in all spaces providentially working behind the scenes to accomplish his specific redemptive purposes and fulfill his covenant promises, even when you don't see it, realize it, or recognize it, as we just sang a minute ago. Even when we don't see it, you're working. Now, do we believe what we sing? See, there's no, simply be- there's no better place in all of Scripture that I think teaches us and reveals us the providence and promise-keeping nature of God than right where we are in the book of Esther. If you've never read through it, then this might be an eye-opening study as we walk through this book. But this book has 10 chapters. My math is right. It has 167 verses and not one solitary mention of the name of God. But it is the most sustained meditation on the sovereignty of God anywhere in the Bible. Mark Dever, pastor theologian, said the book of Esther is just one long narrative illustration of Romans 8.28, which says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So the book of Esther is about how the sovereign God is constantly working through imperfect people like you and I, through difficult, painful situations, through unforeseen circumstances, to bring about his redemptive purposes. You see, God may not be named in this book, but his providential purposes scream from every single page. He may not be uttered on the lips of any of the characters that we've read about or read about today, but the evidence of his divine fingerprints are throughout this book. 
It's his name may not end up in the title or any of the verses. But as Pastor Brandon has said the last two weeks, he is the main character. So let's jump in. If you haven't already made your way to Esther, make your way to Esther. We're going to be in chapter 2. So go ahead and make your way there. And as we get there, we're all going to be introduced today to the namesake of the book, Esther. Uh, we're going to meet her cousin, also guardian, named Mordecai in just a moment. And as you're making your way to Esther, um, I want to give a super quick recap but also a disclaimer for where we're going to be in our text today and what we're going to see. So just to catch you up, we're in the middle of the Persian Empire, circa about 472 B.C. It's a vast empire that covered uh, what uh, Esther chapter 1 says, covered 127 provinces from Ethiopia to Indy and multiple hundreds of square millions of miles of land. Just to test your knowledge, who is the king? Xerxes, who wants to try the other name? Ahasuerus, there you go. Ahasuerus, we're going to call him Xerxes because that's far easier. He is the king over Persia. And here's a side note. I have a dog named Xerxes. I feel like I need to confess my soul before you, before I can preach God's word to you. But it is a stinking cool name for a dog, right? It is a cool name for a dog. I didn't really name him after the egotistical, uh, narcissistic guy Xerxes, even though in the movie 300, which you probably shouldn't watch. But if you have, he's pretty cool in that movie. But it's just a cool name. Carl and I literally live out of Blake Shelton's song. She names babies. I name dogs. That's how we roll. Okay? So Xerxes is my dog. Uh, my whole family can attest. He's a Boston Terrier. He's the most obedient creature in our whole home. Right? If you've been to my house, you know this. And if you come to my house, he'll grab his plush blue platypus toy that he doesn't chew, he just carries, and his little butt'll wag, and he'll come to you and give you lots of love and affection. Okay, side note, he's an awesome dog. His name is Xerxes. Okay, but don't judge. All right? The real Xerxes is driven by power and pleasure. He believed he was a god. And everybody treated him as if he was a god. And he, hear me, he is the epitome of a life without restraint. He is the epitome of a life without consequences. He did what he wanted, when he wanted, with whom he wanted. He was powerful, influential, and the most revered man in the world during his reign. And he was never satisfied with anything. Always more, always more, more women, more land, more power, more people, more servants, more admiration. Always want more. And when we, we jumped in chapter 1 and chapter, uh, as we moved to chapter 2, we learned that in the first chapter he threw this 180-day party. No rules at all. All the officials came, all the servants came. It was a party full of drunkenness and immorality and that good old biblical word debauchery, which is just like drunken chaos is what's going on and opulence and golden sofas and all these things. And then after that, he had a seven-day party for everybody else. So everybody had to go to the palace and be impressed with him, to be jealous of him, to make them look to him to be their provider and the one who they need to provide all their needs and supply all their needs and meet all their wants that they would believe that there was no better king or ruler than this man. But that wasn't enough for him. Because after the party ended, he was like, dude, what else can I do to make people jealous of me and show off how awesome I am? I know what. I have a beautiful wife. So he got good and drunk. The Bible says he was married with wine. He says, bring in my queen. She, the Bible says she's beautiful. As Brenda said, her name Vashti literally means beloved, beautiful. So that's probably just a title given. And it says, bring her in wearing the royal crown, which most scholars says, with just on her royal crown. So bring in my wife, who's beautiful, parade her, likely without clothes on, in front of everybody so they can lust after her and think that I am the man and wish she was their wife. Then I'll feel like I'm even more admired and loved and people are jealous of me and it'll satisfy me for just a moment. He is a textbook narcissist. 
Okay? If you don't know what that means, it means self-focused all the time. He loved himself more than anybody else and only cared about his own pleasure. So he's not used to getting, he's not used to not getting what he wants, and he's not used to anybody telling him no. All right? Which brought us to the end of chapter one, where his queen told him no. She refused to come in, rightfully so, and be demeaned in front of all these people. He got enraged, got embarrassed. Officials said, you got to do something about this king. If everybody hears out that your queen told you no, some women will think they can talk to their husbands in a way like she did. You better hush up all the women of the empire, make them all the men masters in their domain, set out an edict so that all the husbands will be rulers in the household and get rid of Vashti so she never can be in your presence again. That'll show people how a man should be treated in his home. He agrees. He goes along with it. The edict goes out. And everyone should abide by it. Which, as Brenda said last week, it shows you he wasn't even sovereign enough to control his own household. That's where we ended out last week. So as we start chapter 2, I want you to know that four years have passed between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So four years have passed. We're going from the third year to the seventh year of his reign. It's about 480 B.C. And look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says this, After these things... These things refer to a period of time when King Xerxes, driven by this insatiable desire for more, tried to take over Greece. If you've seen the movie 300, that's when this happens, the Battle of Thermopylae. Happens during this time period. They win that little battle, but ultimately uh, the Persians lose the battle for Greece, and they have to go back in shame to Persia. So during this time period, he didn't handle defeat well. He didn't handle his military uh, not being successful. And so he is sitting and frustrated. And history says that he began this period of very sensual sexual overindulgence as if it wasn't already bad enough because he was trying to make himself feel better. So much so, which I found this very interesting, during that time period, he began to take the wives of his officials and they ultimately revolted against him and assassinated him in 465. Choices do have consequences, eventually. But that being said, here's my quick disclaimer. Our text today reveals how brutal and wicked the Persian Empire is and how evil this king really is. In this empire, people were used as commodities for his pleasure, which means women were completely objectified and used in disgusting ways where they had really no say in the matter. But not just women... Men were also forced to do things to whatever the king called them to do, no matter what. So there's some really hard, despicable truths that we learn about life in a broken kingdom in this chapter. And we see the complexities of a sinful world. So today is going to be heavy and hard. I'll try to interject a little bit of humor to keep it not quite as heavy and hard at times. But here's the deal. There's going to be a lot of questions and not very many answers. We're going to wrestle with questions, and the text will not give us the answers we think that we want. And we're just going to have to trust that God will give us wisdom to discern and understand how his providential hand is at work, even in the midst of such hard situations, and that he is bringing a plan of redemption through flawed people. So instead of reading the whole text up front, we're going to work through it verse by verse. Before we do so, I want to pray a quick prayer, then we'll jump in. Father, here is my quick, short, earnest prayer this morning, that you that the Holy Spirit who lives in us would, through the word of God that we're about to read, reveal to us clearly the Son of God, whose name is Jesus. And we ask in his name. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to jump in. I hope you're not there already. Go ahead and get there to be on the screen. After these things, 
when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He remembers what she had done. Blame on her. This is what she has done. So these four years have passed. Here's a moment to reflect. Think about what has happened, what what has occurred in the kingdom. And he's talking about her refusal to come to him and how he had banished her. Now, I think he's remorseful and regretful, maybe sad because his beautiful queen is gone. But what he's not is repentant. He's not repentant. It's worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. He's not repentant over what has happened. He's only mad about the consequences of his actions, that his most beloved queen is no longer at his bidding. He doesn't really care that he demeaned her. He doesn't really care that he humiliated her. He only cares about himself. His officials, knowing that if it goes bad for the king, it goes bad for them. So we got to do something to cheer up the king before something really terrible happens. So they came up with this idea, this proposal, to help him stop pouting about Vashti the queen being gone. Two through four. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young, women, you know, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashdai. This pleased the king, and he did so. So two chapters in, and we're already, it's already evident that Xerxes almost never makes a decision for himself. Every time there's something to be decided, he looks to his counsel. Hey, what should I do? What needs to happen? So he constantly is defaulting to these men in his kingdom who could speak to him and are as beck and call. As Brandon said, he is often enslaved to the whims of the people, even though he's supposed to rule over them. Here's a side note. You best be careful who you listen to. Not every person who has advice for you has your best intention at heart. Not all counsel is biblical, and not all advice is godly. And if you surround yourself with people who never tell your truth, you will go to do it to your own destruction. Someone said a friend is someone who will stab you in the front and not in the back. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you let have access to your heart because it can lead to destruction, and it's going to lead to destruction eventually. So we had the young man come in, and here's their idea. Let's have an empire-wide beauty pageant to find you a new queen. That'll cheer you up, and you'll be happy. Normally, queens were chosen from noble Persian families. They're going to uh, kind of bypass that. They're going to have this beauty pageant, and there's three criteria for those that can come. They have to be beautiful, they have to be young, and they have to be virgins. So history tells us at this time period, there's roughly 50 million people in the Persian Empire. So if you do the math, maybe there's 25 million women, give or take. The Jewish historian Josephus writes that he believes there are about 400 actual women from across the empire that met the criteria perfectly and were brought to the palace. Now, this is just for clarification. It doesn't make it better. It's still awful, wicked, and, and, and hard to fathom. But when it says uh, this description, this is referring to women of Marian age. These are not little girls, thankfully, which would make it even more despicable. Uh, but it's women of Marian age from across the empire that were brought. That is a distinction I think is important to have in mind. But here's the reality. Those 400 women of Marian age who are beautiful young virgins all had dreams other than what they're about to get. This was not their daydream for their marriage and their family. This is not what they would believe would be true of them in their lives. They had aspirations far beyond what they're about to get. And I do want to say this, and it may be hard to hear, but I want to to be honest with you. All scholars say this, during this time period of the Persian Empire, which is such a broken, wicked place, for some of those 400 women, this would be a step up from their circumstances. 
And we can be like, oh, that's unfathomable. Like, I don't know, our modern sensibilities think that. But in this empire, it was so broken and wicked. For some of them, it's like, man, my life is awful. I would rather go live in the harem than live here. If some families would encourage their kids, their, their daughters, and do something, cheer them on. It's wicked and it's evil, but it's true. I don't want to bypass that. We don't need to sanitize scripture. It's hard, it's real, that's why it's applicable. So these women were bought there. Surely the harem had comforts and conveniences and luxury. And I know it seems unfathomable to us, but if you look around, do we live in a sex-crazed culture? How many men and women voluntarily put themselves in industries where they are used, abused, and paraded? And so we haven't come very far. We just got more sophisticated in how we do it. And that's what's going on here. It's awful, it's sad, and it's heartbreaking. But there's one thing that I learned this week that really I had no idea about. I've preached through Esther before, but I never realized this fact. It wasn't just women who were objectified, but every single year, listen, 500 little boys were taken from the empire, brought to the palace, and castrated and made into eunuchs. So I know we read this story like, man, this is awful for women. It is, but it's awful for everybody. This just highlights one, one aspect of the awfulness. So across the empire, you have families ripped apart because Xerxes owns you no matter what. He controlled you. He did whatever he wanted to do. No one had honor. No one had value. Nobody had any worth. He only did what he wanted to do, and it's wicked and evil. So far and wide, these families had their sons and their daughters ripped away from them so this uh, egotistical king should ha- could have his appetite somewhat satiated, and it's heartbreaking to think about the suffering that they endured. But guess what? That's life in a broken kingdom. Needless to say, the king is overjoyed with the idea of the young men. Let's move forward, gather all the beautiful young virgins from across the empire. And it's easy to step back and say, man, Xerxes is leading the charge and he's calling the shots and everything's happening according to his purposes and his will. But I want you to understand that there's a God in heaven who works even through the wicked choices of sinful people. That there's a God who is working his redemptive plan through irredeemable, despicable circumstances. And this next statement, I want you to write down, if you write it down, but I want you to hear it clearly. God never ordains sin, and God never ordains evil. But God is never thwarted by either one of them. If God can use the wicked, rebellious nature of Pharaoh in the Old Testament to get the people of Israel out of captivity, he can use an egotistical king like Xerxes to accomplish his purposes as well. which was to preserve his covenant people and preserve a pathway for the Messiah who would one day come. So we're about to see the stage being set for the covenant people of God to in time be preserved in the brutal empire of the Persians. We're going to meet two of our main characters, verses 5 and 6. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemaiah, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, uh, and carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So here's Mordecai. What do we learn about him? He's Jewish from the line of Kish, the Benjaminites, as his tribe, which means he's a direct descendant of King Saul. Pretty important bloodline. Talks about the people being, being a part of the people that were carried away from Jerusalem during the Babylonian captivity, which God sent the people of Israel into because of disobedience and rebellion. But if we dig into history a little bit, we understand that Mordecai actually was born and raised and reared right there in the Persian Empire. It was his relatives who were brought there. And he kind of was, he, he was born there. This is all he's ever known. It's the only world he's ever lived in. 
was in captivity. He had not been in Jerusalem. This is where he had put down roots, and this is all that he had known for his whole life. And here's the rub. King Cyrus previously had given the uh, Israelites freedom to leave Persia and go back to Jerusalem. You read this in Ezra and Nehemiah. He said, go back, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, go back, and you can leave here. But a segment of the Jews did not leave. Perhaps they were too assimilated to the culture, and it was too convenient, and that's all they knew, so they didn't want to leave and go back home. But they stayed, and it was the relatives of Mordecai that stayed, and that's why he is still in the middle of the Persian Empire. And Mordecai is not his Jewish name. We don't know his Jewish name. He's named after the god, of, the chief Babylonian god named Marduk. So it's not uncommon for the Jews who were brought into captivity to have their names changed. Go back to Daniel. You remember him and his boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Names were changed because the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire wanted to do this. They wanted to assimilate you, indoctrinate you, and enculturate you into Persia. The old is gone, the new has come, lose your old identity, find a new one here with us. He was a Jewish man with a Persian name in a foreign land, not his home. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. But when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So finally we get Esther. Her real name is Hadassah. Her Persian name is Esther. She's the only character in the book of Esther who would get both her names. Which I think, maybe it's just me being a pastoral geek, but I think that's really interesting because I think it represents that she was a woman torn before two, between two worlds. Torn between two identities. Esther means myrtle. I mean, Hadassah means myrtle and Esther means star. And likely she's named after the Babylonian goddess of love and war, Ishtar. And the Bible says that she's lovely. She's beautiful. Very specific, relevant details for what's occurring in this story. And that Mordecai took her in when her parents died. Verse 8, so the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So if you're like me, and you may or may not be, but I encourage you, when you read the Bible, it's okay to ask questions. And when I read this passage, I started asking questions. Did Mordecai fight for Esther not to be taken? Like when those imperial guards showed up, did Mordecai throw hands with those fellas? Like, you're not taking her. She's not going with you. Did he try to protect her at all? Did he try to resist? Did he do anything to keep her to be taken from his home? We don't know. Does your Bible have any details? Because mine doesn't. We're not told what happened. And what about Esther? Did Esther fight? Did she protest? Did she claw and scrape and scream? Did she resist? We can make a lot of assumptions, and some people do. And you can make a lot of conjectures. Hear what you cannot do definitively, make it a conclusion. Because we don't know what happened. The text does not tell us. We don't know how Esther responded. We want to believe she made it very difficult for the guards for her to go. But we're not told. So are we to praise Mordecai and Esther or do we judge them? Or we believe they did all they could do to keep this from happening. Or do we believe they just submitted to the king like everybody else did? You see, I want clean, clear answers, and they are not given in this text. The Bible says Esther was beautiful, and Esther was taken. That's all we got. Verse 8 and 9. 
Esther was also taken to the king's palace and put in custody of a guy who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portions of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, he advanced her and her young woman, women to the best place in the harem. So Esther arrives on the scene. She's in the palace. She wins favor with the eunuch in charge of the harem. She's beautiful. She's winsome. She's likable. She's likely extraordinary. Okay? She's given the best of what was available, her and seven other chosen women. She's taken care of, and it says what? She's advanced to the best place in the harem. And when I read that, I would think that's like saying you have the best place in the quicksand. Or come here, you have the best place to lay your head in the rattlesnake den. There's no good place to be in quicksand. There's no good place to be in a rattlesnake den. And there's no good place to be in the harem. But that's where she is. This is not, hear me. This is not every little girl's dream scenario of her Disney fairy tale life. And we need to wrestle with that and live in the tension. This is hard. This is not right. It's immoral. It's wicked and wrong, but it's life in a broken empire under a broken king. 10 and 11. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. We don't know why Mordecai commanded Esther to keep her ethnicity a secret. We're not given any explanation at this point why he's so adamant about her concealing her Jewish identity. At this point, you may know the story, but if you don't, at this point, there's been no threats made against the Jews at all. That'll soon change. But at this point, there's nothing to worry about. So, now, th- this is hard truth. Some scholars say most likely he told her to conceal her identity because he thought if people knew she was Jewish, she would not be able to move up the ladder in the harem the way that she should. That it would Im- impede her from advancing in this broken system of immorality. Scholars said that. Jason's not saying that. I'm just deferring. I don't know. But that, that, we just read this. We're like... We have no other evidence. Like, it just seems like, why do you want to keep this concealed? And here's what we need to understand. When we read the Bible, be careful to go beyond the text. You can make conjectures, but be careful to go beyond the text because it's there for a reason, and it's not there for a reason. Sometimes God wants us to live in tension that we can't reconcile. So what do we learn about Mordecai? He tells her to be quiet about her ethnicity. She obeys. We can understand that Mordecai loves Esther. He goes back and forth in front of the court to check on her to see how she's doing. He wanted to make sure she was okay. Mordecai is not perfect. He's a flawed man. His motives are unknown. His intentions are vague. Same with Esther. She's in a very unfortunate situation, but we know she's not perfect. We know she is flawed. That's we don't really know anything about her besides what the text tells us. But do you ever see Esther or Mordecai pray? We don't see them talk about their faith. We don't talk about the covenant promises of God. We don't see them live out their convictions. We don't see them talk about their beliefs. We, we wrestle with, have they compromised? Or are they living out their faith and it just doesn't say so? We don't know. And it's hard when they don't have the answers that we want. So we wrestle with attention and trust God as we walk through it because there's answers the text does not give us because it's trying to show us that there is a broken world that we live in and not everything, despite our desires, fits in a neat, clean, easy box. Some of you are like, I love boxes and I love to check them off. I need clean, clear boxes and there aren't any in Esther. All we do know is this. Other than Jesus Christ, 
Every other Bible character, even the godliest of them, were seriously flawed, often confused, and most often disobedient. Yet God used them. And he worked in and through their lives to accomplish his purposes. And he's going to do the very same thing in Mordecai and Esther's life. 12 through 15 are some heartbreaking, hard, difficult passages. I mean, verses to read. 12 through 15. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was a regular period of their beautifying, six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz. The king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So each one of these 400 women were brought in. They had this 12-month beautification regiment to prepare them literally for a one-night stand. So these women were marinated in oil and fumigated with chemical baths. And oil and all these aromatic things were given to them so their skin would be beautiful and so their complexion would be lovely and their hair would be healthy and they would smell good and they would look good. All so the king would be pleased with them and hopefully give them a second look. They're doing all this for this one night stand to impress this king. And we can look at that and go, man, man, these people are so consumed with beauty. Those crazy Persians and all their vain pursuits. Are we any different? Do we live in a beauty crazed culture? If you don't believe me, why do we have Instagram filters? Every blemish, every tarnish, every hair out of place. Let's remove it. And put out an impression of us that's not even true. We are consumed with appearances as much as anybody else. We live for the applause of people so often. And we simply want to see people like our post and, and follow us as if that satisfies. And you know what? That is exhausting. Because we try to attach our, our value and our worth to the approval of people who really don't care about us. So these women are prepped for 12 months, and when their number was called, they're taken to the king. The text explicitly says this. They went into the king's chamber at night, and in the morning they would leave and go to the second harem. And they would stay in that harem and never see the king again unless he delighted in them and summoned her by name. Every detail of this is awful. See, none of these women, hear it, none of these women would have ever have dreamed their first intimate moment would occur in this, passion, in this situation with this king. They would not have wanted their first intimate encounter to be so that they could gain the approval of a king by performing well in this situation. I'm trying to be as sanitized as I can with this. Hoping that one day, maybe, possibly, he might call their name again and they could come back. This is wicked and evil. And it gets worse. Because after this one night stand, it says they literally were sent out of the bedchamber to the second harem. That's the epitome of a walk of shame. Not because... Of their sins. Because they've been used and abused by a wicked king. So these women had their purity taken. Their innocence is lost. And they were discarded to the second harem. And what is the significance of the second harem? I'm glad you asked. Here it is. When they went into his bedchamber. And they left his bedchamber. Of the three criteria, two of them were still true. They were beautiful. And they were young. But they were no longer virgins. And so they were no longer as valuable. And so they were sent to the second harem. 
where they would live the rest of their lives and none of them would ever go home. This was their existence for perpetuity. Like they would never go home. This became their home. Luxurious food, skin care, great and all that. But can you imagine how broken these women felt? How difficult it must have been to spend the rest of their days away from their families with all these other women that were in the same situation and never even to see the king again unless he beckoned them by name for his pleasure. 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was one in favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is a month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashdai. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. I want you to think, just wrap your mind around, in chapter 2, here's what's happened in Esther's life. And I'm going to alliterate for your joy and mine. She was adopted by Mordecai. She was abducted by the guards. She was advanced in the harem. She was adorned with a crown and she was announced as a queen. I know you're impressed. I stole it from somebody. Don't be really impressed, okay? But it sounded good. Adopted, abducted, advanced, adorned, and announced in one chapter. We're not even in the chapter yet. So you have Esther with this complicated, confusing, unbelievable series of events in her life. And now you have a Jewish orphan on the throne as the queen of Persia. And I'm not going to be crass, I'm going to be PG as I possibly can, but she's there because her night went really well. Whatever that means. It went really well, he liked her more than anybody else, she went grace and favor in his, eye, in his eyes, he made her queen, cut some taxes, gave generous gifts to show how pleased he was with her. So at this moment, King Xerxes does not know she's Jewish, and the Jewish people don't know that they need her to be Jewish. They don't know that they need her to be Jewish for their preservation. But you know who does know all those things? The real king in heaven. Who's actually ruling and reigning over all of this stuff. So we see Esther on the throne. If you're like me, I begin to wrestle with kind of these moral complexities and ambiguities about how she got to that position and I try to map, wrap my mind around all the evil and wickedness that's on display, and I begin to ask, how in the world could any conceivable good come out of such tragedy and depravity and marginalization and immorality that we have seen in the book of Esther thus far? But the unnamed main character, the one who has been writing and orchestrating the grand story of redemption from eternity past, was providentially working through each and every detail so that his purposes would be fulfilled. We just have to sit in the tension of that truth. And here's what I do know. I'm not omniscient. My children think I am at times. I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omnipresent. I'm not sovereign. So I don't know all the answers. I don't have all the information. I know what I know because God's revealed it to me. But you know who has access to all that? God. And before we shake our fists at him, we realize we're not him. And we often don't understand how he works or why he works. 
So we have to live in this tension of the fact that there's a sovereign God who is good and holy, and it was his plan for Esther to be on the throne of Persia at this very moment in redemptive history. That God needed her to be on the throne to accomplish his purposes, so that's where he providentially placed her. These next statements I want to give, give with as much clarity as I can give you. I want you to listen carefully as we come to an end. The sovereign God of the universe is never handcuffed by the evil of humanity. The God of the universe is not shackled by the wickedness of narcissistic kings or tyrannical rulers. He is not thwarted by our sinful choices or our poor decisions, which are many, right? He is not limited by any of our moral compromises or any of our immoral complicities. He is not constrained by our abject failures nor our many imperfections. And he is never thrown off track or surprised by our waywardness or disobedience. See, God's people throughout history are not perfect. But God's plans always are. God's people are not perfect, but his purposes always are. And God's people are not perfect, but his promises are. And here's what I want you to know. From eternity past... God planned to send a redeemer to save his people from their sins. And from eternity past, God purposed to send a Messiah who would rescue his people from their shame. And from eternity past, God promised that one day, according to Isaiah, a son would come and a child would be born who would be called what? Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So from eternity past, the Bible says there's a triune God who ordained that in the fullness of time, he would send a Savior to the world. And that Savior would be his only begotten Son, according to John 3, 16, who would come and restore all that had been broken by sin and reconcile those that had been lost. See, from eternity past, God declared one day a better king would come, and that better king would bring a much better kingdom. That better king would come, and he would not be marked with self-centeredness and pride. But this better king would be marked with humility and actually take on the role of a servant. You see, this better king would come, and he would not be consumed with his own interest. But Philippians 2 says he would lay aside his own interest for the benefit of other people. And there's a better king who would not sit back and beckon people to come to him at his bidding, but instead he would take the initiative to go to where they were. And a better king who would not see people and treat people as commodities to be used and abused for his pleasure. But he would see people made in the image of his father, endowed with value, worth, and dignity. A better king who would not take the purity of his people and cover them with shame. But he would instead take the shame of his people and cover them with grace and perfect beauty. A better king who would not make his love contingent on someone's outward appearance or their pleasing performance, but who would lavish love upon those who are unlovely, stained, and broken, and unable to do anything to make themselves presentable or lovely before him. A better king who would leave a heavenly throne and according to the Bible, take upon himself all of our hurt and pain and suffering and grief, and he would take our walk of shame that led him straight to humiliation and the cross so that we could get forgiveness and wholeness and clean. We have a better king who would esteem people instead of tearing people down. 
who would set captives free instead of enslaving them, who would fight against injustice instead of producing it and upholding it, who would elevate lowly people instead of oppressing them, who give a voice to the voiceless instead of muting them, who would welcome the marginalized and care for the overlooked instead of ostracizing and alienating them. A better king who would take delight in his people. And he would come and personally call them by name to come to him. Not to take something from them or get anything from them, but simply to give his love to them. A better king who would not use his royalty to destroy lives and families and futures. But a better king who would leverage his royalty so that lives would be transformed and families would be restored and futures could be secured. A better king who would not simply grant a remission of taxes and give some generous gift to his people, but who would instead grant a remission of sins through the generous gift of his very own life. You see, Redemption Hero family, in person and online, if you are not picking up what I'm putting down, and in the words of theologian The Rock, if you're not smelling what Jason is cooking, I'm talking about Jesus. Right? We're talking about Jesus. The whole Bible's about him. Every story whispers his name. And we rejoice this morning, church family, because Jesus who is the Son of God and the Son of Man, did indeed come as God planned and purposed and promised. So we rejoice, not just that Jesus came, but that Jesus came voluntarily, took our cross, our death, our grave, so we could be forgiven and salvation could be secured. We rejoice because the Bible says every single promises, all the promises of God have what? Found their yes in Jesus. And we rejoice because if, and that if is important, we rejoice because if we have trusted in Jesus' perfect work and perfect worth and have surrendered to him as our Savior and our King, then, according to the New Testament, we have been ushered into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we've been given an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and is kept in heaven for you till he brings you home. And we are able... To rejoice about all the things that I've just said because we have a covenant-keeping God who way back in the Persian Empire in about 480 B.C. sovereignly ruled and reigned over the actions of a wicked king and providentially advanced an orphan Jewish girl named Esther to the throne. If she doesn't go to that throne, we're not here. She went there so that the people of God would be protected and the pathway for the Messiah would be preserved. And it is because of God's good provision, his protection and preservation, that you and I have been given the undeserved privilege of being adopted into the family of this better king. Not as servants, not as slaves, but as beloved royal sons and daughters and co-heirs with Jesus. So as Pastor Brandon said last week, Beautifully, and I just want to end with his words. You hear this truth, and there's two options. You're either walking towards this king or you're walking away from him. That's the only two choices. Jesus is a better king. 
church family in this room and online, will you walk towards him this morning?